You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. This is an incredibly important and timely episode. We're going to dive into the latest research, the latest data, all of the new studies that have been coming out surrounding the current situation with COVID-19. And this is going to be a deep dive. This is going to be an adventure. This is going to be something that we really got to tune in and pay close attention to. I'm going to go through a lot of different studies, a lot of different data. So I'm going to need you to, to buckle up and get ready for this ride. It's incredibly important and you're going to walk away so much more enlightened and empowered. So the first thing that we want to talk about today is the psychosomatic effects of COVID-19 that we're seeing in the data. And now several studies have come out talking about this issue. A psychosomatic disorder is a condition in which psychological stressors adversely affect physical health. And another definition of psychosomatic conditions is a physical condition caused or aggravated by a mental factor such as internal conflict or stress. Now, what is the biggest issue that we're facing right now as a culture? Are we more or less stressed than we were in years past? And you already know the answer to that. There's an incredibly overwhelming amount of stress that millions, really billions of people here on the planet are experiencing collectively. And we've got to look at what is at the root of this and is it causing worse health outcomes with this pandemic that we're experiencing? Now, stress has been proven, again, just to recap, to increase the susceptibility to viral infections, number one, and stress has been proven to aggravate symptoms of viral infections and make health outcomes worse. So what we're going to dive into is how stress and fear changes our biology and look at the most recent data on this directly linking to COVID-19, which we're going to get to in a moment. But I want to talk about a specific aspect of this, which is psychoneuroimmunology. All right, psychoneuroimmunology. And this is a field of science that's evolved over the last 40 years to study how our endocrine system, right, our system of hormones, and our nervous system controls our immune system. All right. Now, in this manner, the hormones, neurotransmitters, and neuropeptides we produce have been found to regulate our immune cells. And scientists from the University of Rochester stated, quote, of critical importance is the effect of the central nervous system and nerves on the maintenance of the delicate balance between cell-mediated and humoral immune responses. Keyword, delicate balance. All right, so our nervous system really helps to manage this delicate balance of taking in this external feedback and our internal production of hormones related to our perception. So what I really want us to analyze for just a moment is how our thoughts really change the chemistry in our bodies. Every single thought that we have has correlating chemistry. And so if we're thinking about stressful things, right, we're thinking about something that maybe makes us upset and angry, that feeling of anger is driven, the dominoes are really knocked over by the secretion of certain hormones that make us feel that way, neurotransmitters, neuropeptides, right? So that's creating the correlating chemistry. Your brain is the most powerful pharmacy 
in the universe. And I say that very specifically because unlike a pharmaceutical drug, the drugs that you make inside of yourself, the chemistry you make inside of yourself is designed for your unique receptor sites. It's perfectly, it's not even bioidentical, it's identical. It's designed for you based on your perception. And how often can our perceptions be wrong? And how often can our perceptions become overwhelming and create an unmanageable feeling of stress, of anxiety, of depression? And again, many of these issues are, are fairly rooted in our perception of reality. And this isn't talked about enough. So again, that study and those researchers were highlighting this. It's a delicate balance. It's a very delicate balance because our perception will literally instantaneously change what our immune system is capable of doing, right? Now, although these researchers are highlighting these effects at this time in human history, the impact of psychological stress on our immune system that has been identified recently, it's always existed. It's always been there. Our perception, our levels of stress, psychological stress has always controlled our immune system. Today, we just have modern technology and science to affirm something that's been happening forever. All right, so this is cutting edge stuff, but it's always existed. And this is what we gotta really work on today is to be able to take a meta perspective and look at the big picture and to understand how these different dynamics are controlling our health outcomes, all right? So neuroscientist, Dr. Candice Pert, who's just amazing, absolutely such, a, such an inspiration for me. She actually is the person who discovered the opiate receptor. Right, she's the person who discovered the opiate receptor. She said that, quote, viruses use the same receptors as neuropeptides to enter a cell. And depending on how much of the natural peptide for a particular receptor is around and available to bind, the virus that fits that receptor will have an easier or harder time getting into the cell. Because the molecules of emotion are involved in the process of a virus entering the cell, it's logical to assume that the state of our emotions will affect whether or not we succumb to a viral infection, unquote. Dr. Pert later discovered even more data affirming how our nervous systems and immune systems are in constant communication with each other. Now, here on a recent episode of the Model Health Show, we had on cell biologist, Dr. Bruce Lipton, who's really the, the foremost expert and pioneer in epigenetics, the person who's really immersed our culture or, or helped to usher into our culture this term epigenetics. And he shared with us on that episode, and we'll put that for you in the show notes if you happen to have missed it, that the stress response from fear, worry, and anxiety are particularly suppressive to the immune system. And according to Dr. Lipton, one of the major problems we are currently facing is the fear response that's being fed in part by the media, by our constant bombardment of news that is driven and really kind of attacking the more primitive parts of our psychology and really inundating us with fear. When we are in constant fear response, our immune systems are compromised. It's one of the things that he talked about because vital resources and energy are being channeled to mobilize a fight or flight response. He shared with us a reminder that stress hormones are so effective in shutting down the immune system 
that they're actually used in treatments to suppress the immune system for patients who are receiving an organ transplant, for example, because our bodies will naturally reject someone else's organs. So stress hormones are used to suppress the immune system. So what do you think is happening right now while we're being inundated with stress, while we're producing these stress-related hormones chronically, like, like a low-grade fever, low-grade fire, all the time, 24-7? What's happening to our immune system? He summarized that many people have become glued to their televisions, and rightfully so. Again, it's, there's so much to worry about. There's so much fear. They've become glued to their televisions, being kept in a state of hyper-alertness and cortisol-driven fear responses. And when in this state, we feel powerless, vulnerable, and the psychosomatic effects makes us more vulnerable to illness. And so what I wanted to share with you guys today and what really inspired this episode was this really strange experience that I had. I basically, I turned on the television and the television automatically is on, just kind of set on this new channel uh, here in our area. And I don't typically, you know, of course I stay up to date with what's going on in the world, but more so looking through the lens of, you know, peer reviewed evidence. But the news was on and there was a physician who made some really unsettling claims about what would happen if people went outside of their door during this pandemic when we have a new strain of the virus. And it was so shocking for me that I'm going to play it for you so that you can hear it for yourself. And I just want you to really listen very carefully to the words that he uses. Listen to this. The measure that Angelinos have done over the past nine to 10 months to protect themselves and not wearing face masks or doing social distancing or washing your hands, that's not going to protect you against this mutation in that it is much more contagious to acquire. Anytime an Angelino goes out, anytime you're exposed to another human being, you are essentially putting yourself and everyone that you live with in front of a firing squad. He said that washing your hands, wearing a mask, and social distancing will not help you against this new strain of the virus. And that if you go outside of your door, you're putting yourself in front of a firing squad. This news is getting broadcast to millions of people. And the thing is, the psychological connection that we all have to terms like a firing squad, what that really means for us cognitively is imminent death. If you're getting in front of a firing squad, it's imminent death. And there's also another thing that's coupled with that psychological imagery of a firing squad is that to be in front of that firing squad, you've committed a crime. So going outside of your door is the crime and nothing can protect you. None of the things that we were told could protect you can no longer protect you. Do not leave out of your door. Now, I don't know this gentleman and he might be somebody who cares a lot about people. And what I would imagine is that his intent was not to cause harm. His intent was to simply advise people to exercise extreme caution. But the language that he used inflicted pain to unknowing citizens who are watching this because this is what's termed as a nocebo effect, which we're gonna talk about some of the science around this today. And a nocebo effect, it really bypasses your more executive functioning part of your brain, your prefrontal cortex, because that's the part of your brain responsible for distinguishing between right and wrong, for forethought, for social control, for executive decision-making. When you're getting an injunction from an authority figure, again, a physician who's on the news, so he obviously must know his stuff. 
When you get an association, an injunction, a message from that person, it bypasses your reasoning to question it and goes directly to your subconscious, invoking more fear and worry. And the ramifications are some of the things that we're talking about today. Could this inflict more harm than the condition that we're trying to defend ourselves against in the first place? Could it make us more susceptible to harm? And the truth is what we're going to dive into deeper and deeper today. Again, he said that if you leave outside of your door, you're putting yourself in front of a firing squad. Not just yourself, you and the people in your household, you and the people you care about. You're putting you in front of a firing squad because the things that have been done previously are not going to protect you from this strain, right? Mask wearing, social distancing, washing your hands. And the funny thing is, not even two weeks later, LA opened back up. It's been closed for almost a year. My man's on TV telling people to be gripped by fear. And then finally things opened up, not even two weeks later. It's about a week and a half later. Was it was the decision to open back up based on science? Was it based on science to close everything in the first place? These are all issues when we get into political agendas, when we get into issues of improper communication, when we get into issues of not taking into consideration the fallout, the ramifications for shutting things down and or opening things up. Many of these things that we've done has not been based on science. And the thing is, if you actually look at the results, which we're gonna talk about more, if you look at the results here in the United States, how did we do? We had the most mandates here in, in California, the most restrictions, highest rate of cases, highest death rate. We've had incredibly high, contrary to popular belief in the media, but between 70 and 90% compliance with mask wearing, for example, we still had the highest rate of cases. More deaths were leading the world in these departments and nobody's really asking why. Why haven't these mandates worked very well? And are we at the end of this? What is the fallout from these decisions? And these are just all things that I wanna talk about and for us to consider today. Because we have data on how these things actually play out in the real world now. And that's what we're going to dive into. This isn't, just, this isn't just theoretical. This isn't like, well, maybe. So how does this play out in the real world? One of the first things I'm just going to start to you know, make a little preview to. And this was published in the peer-reviewed journal, Stress and Health. Found there's a significant connection between the capacity of individuals to cope with life stress and their immune cell activity, specifically their natural killer cells. Folks in the study who don't cope well with stress have significantly lower natural killer cell activity. Why does this matter? Well, I shared this very early on when all of the different mandates were happening and COVID-19 showed up on the scene that the FDA had actually fast-tracked a new therapy, a new drug they were trying to get approved and get to the public that specifically targets our natural killer cells because our natural killer cells, our NK cells, are found to be very effective at killing SARS-CoV-2 infected cells, right? So again, looking through the lens of allopathic medicine, but not understanding what's damaging our natural killer cells in the first place. Stress. Remove the cause. So the immune system can do what it's designed to do. 
Another thing I, I shared a study from Appalachia State University finding that simply going for a short walk created massive boosts in immune parameters, most notably for your natural killer cells. This is something we produce. And if you look at the nature of going for a walk, for example, this is something our genes expect us to do. It helps to reduce stress. It all goes together hand in hand because our bodies and our immune systems don't operate in a vacuum. Like we've been led to believe, like the media would try to lead you to believe, like the science that's not being censored would lead you to believe. The reality is that our perception of reality, our perception of stress and fear and worry and anxiety, all of these relating conditions that we're now seeing skyrocketing right now in our culture, these are the driving forces controlling your immune system. All right, these are the very things that control our, our immune response. So number one, protecting us from susceptibility to a virus inf infection in the first place, but also part two is ensuring that we don't have bad health outcomes if we do get an infection. So the ability of your immune system to recover, these things are inherently damaged by stress, by fear, by worry, by the very things that we're inundated with. And now we're gonna dive in and look at the latest data that we now have on how stress and fear and anxiety and the things we've been inundated with are leading to worse health outcomes. And one of the things I want you to keep in mind, keep in heart, really keep in your, not just your back pocket, put it like in the, in the, in the front shirt pocket, like right there by your heart. Whoever uses that pocket, by the way, pocket protector, <laughs> get the pins or whatever. I never actually met anybody who does that, but put it in this pocket, keep it there because you're going to need it. What's really protecting us and enabling us to adapt to all manner of viral infections? Because as I've shared on past episodes of the show, right now, every human being is carrying approximately 400 trillion virus particles in and on their body. Many of them are pathogenic and can make us sick when our immune system is compromised. Key words, when our immune system is compromised. And now we're facing this novel virus, right? Something that's new. And we were told that there is no innate immunity to it, okay? But we're not told or not even talked about or considered the fact that we have something called the adaptive immune system. And its role in how we evolved is your immune system adapting to the exposure to viruses, bacteria, fungi, uh, parasites, all manner of things that can make us sick and harm us. And so I wanted to point something out for everybody because again, I want you to keep this in your pocket right here in your chest pocket, right here by your heart. Right now, currently, as it stands, we have 110 million cases of SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, 110 million cases worldwide, all right? With that, we've had about 108 million recoveries or people who did not pass away. So I just want you to just, Think about that for a moment. How did they survive? How did they survive? We've got about 107, 108 million people who survived exposure to this virus, actually a confirmed case of this virus. What did it? That's a lot of people, 108 million people. But nobody's talking about that. How, how are they okay? It's because of their immune system. Their immune system did what it's designed to do. Many of these people weren't even well. 
in the first place. They weren't necessarily healthy, but their immune system is still capable. And this is not to say that this isn't a virulent or deadly condition that we're facing right now, but there's no context. There's no context. There's no shining the light on the people that are okay and how they're okay. How are they okay? Their immune system did the job it's designed to do. Let's help more people so their immune system could do the job it's designed to do. Get our citizens healthier. Because as the CDC reported, and I shared this data very early on, as soon as it came out, after they compiled enough data, and this was back in September 2020, we had already lost too many souls. In the CDC's report, after compiling all the data, 94% of the people that we lost in association with SARS-CoV-2, with confirmed cases of COVID-19, 94% of the people we lost had an average of 2.6 pre-existing chronic diseases. It's unbelievable, but the media will not talk about that. They'll talk about the 6% of people who were, quote, perfectly healthy. Perfectly healthy people. And ignoring the 94%, as the system has always done. That's what had upset me in the beginning. Because I was just like, okay, this is our opportunity to really focus on community wellness. Get our systems healthier. Get our, our immune systems healthier, more robust to be able to handle this. Because I saw the early data from Italy. And I was worried about us. But the conversation specifically stayed on how incapable we are of surviving. And all of these external metrics of prevention. And not the internal metrics. Isolate yourself. Wear a mask. Wash your hands. To the point for millions of people, neuroticism with those things. And still seeing our case rate skyrocket. Still seeing our death rate skyrocket because we didn't focus on doing the thing that was most important, which is getting our citizens healthier. Getting our citizens healthier. And even taking that 6% of people who are, quote, perfectly healthy, that's still coming with an assumption. It's a theory that they were perfectly healthy because it doesn't matter how healthy we are. We can be the healthiest person walking around on planet Earth. We've got optimal nutrition body fat. We've got great sleep. We're zenned out. We're zen. We're, we're on that Buddha-ish. All right. We're on that Buddha. Could have all of those things going for you. You know, regular movement practices, everything. But all of a sudden you get stressed out with work and you're not sleeping well. You've got some relationship conflict. Maybe you're traveling and throwing off your, your circadian timing system. Right, this biological clock that controls your immune system, that controls your production of hormones. The list goes on and on. Maybe you start stress snacking and you're eating more processed foods. That your immune cells are made of food. Your immune cells themselves are made from the food that you eat. And now you got Cheeto immune cells. All of those, you can be as healthy as you want. But just a short time, a short period of excess stress can suppress your immune system and radically increase the incidence of number one, contracting an infection, number two, having poor outcomes, and number three, increasing your risk of death, no matter how healthy you are. And this system doesn't even know what health looks like in the first place. It 
to say 94% had an average of 2.6 pre-existing chronic diseases, the 6%, it doesn't know what health looks like. That All that health looks like on paper for conventional medicine is you have a lack of a diagnosis. That's what health is. It knows nothing of health. All right, so all of these things to say, 110 million confirmed cases right now, all right? About 107, 108 million people didn't lose their lives. They didn't pass away. Their immune system did the job it's designed to do. And this is not being talked about. I think it should get just a little bit. It's a little, a little shine. Just a little shine. Like a little, one of those teeny little, like those little bitty key ring flashlights. The one that go on your key, teeny little light. Just a little. That's all I want. All right, that's all I want. Now, here's the craziest part. Now, be ready for this. Be ready for this. We've had on incredible epidemiologists, for example, uh, like Dr. Alan Preston. You know, somebody works in the field of epidemiology, but not just that. I got him because he's somebody who's actually worked with state governments creating their healthcare systems for state governments based on his ability to understand data in epidemiology. Of course, he's been a professor, the list goes on and on, all right? Now, this is what I want you to get. When we have a number of confirmed cases of an infection in a, in a community, in a society, in a country, any epidemiologist worth their salt know that there's upwards of 10 to 15 times or more cases of this virus than what has been confirmed. So if we've got 110 million cases, just on the low end, if we've got 110 million cases, any epidemiologist worth their salt would tell you that there's at least a billion people who've contracted the virus. It's no longer pandemic or epidemic, it's endemic. It's endemic, it's a part of the culture. And most people, we're talking over 99% of the people are okay and nobody's talking about how they're okay which is their immune system did what it's designed to do. Let's help more people so their immune system can do what it's designed to do. We don't even have to be in spectacular health because a lot of the people who are okay don't have spectacular health. We can get a little bit better. But the argument early on, back when I was sharing this data in April, in May, even in June, July, from my colleagues, people that I've known for years, leading medical doctors, other people working in healthcare, nurse practitioners, the list goes on and on. So folks that I respect and that I know, they're chiming in, they're saying, Sean, you're absolutely right. We do need to get our citizens healthier. We do need to increase our resilience. It's too bad we can't get people healthier overnight though. It's too bad we can't get people healthier overnight. And now here we are, a year later, and the conversation still hasn't shifted to getting our citizens healthier. And the funny thing was, I was even sharing data how, in fact, we can suppress our immune system literally overnight, which we'll talk about some of it today. And I shared data on how we can literally improve our immune system, quote, overnight. Like I mentioned earlier, Appalachian State University, simply going for a short walk, instantly boosts our immune parameters most notably for things like neutrophils and specifically for our natural killer cells. What our bodies utilize to protect us from infections and also to help us recover 
simply by going for a walk. That's not even overnight. That's 20 minutes. But they were hanging on to that sign. They were hanging on to that moniker because they're really not about that life. They're not really about that life. They might have, you know, put their toes in the integrative. They got the integrative term, the integrative label, functional. But when it really came down to it, they abandoned that. They abandoned their reasoning. They abandoned their ability to understand the power of the human body and the resilience of human beings. And went right back to that conventional training that you are not enough, that your body is incapable. And I'm standing, I'm standing here today in defense of all of us because we are so much more. We're so much better than this. So let's move on, dive a little bit deeper. This is looking at directly the data that we now have on the psychological turmoil that we've been inundated with, how this has affected our health outcomes. So listen to this. This study was published in the peer-reviewed journal, Brain, Behavior, and Immunity, and investigated the dynamics of psychoneuroimmunology and COVID-19. Some of the key points the researchers revealed are, number one, there's been a substantial, unanticipated impact of COVID-19 on the psychological health of both the general community and affected individuals. Two, the fear of COVID-19 and the consequent lockdown and economic crisis has led to globally increased psychological distress. Three, activated immune inflammatory pathways, especially chronic low-grade inflammation, are directly connected with major psychiatric disorders. Mood disorders, mental health issues, directly activate inflammatory responses in the body. That's what that's saying. Our thoughts can create inflammation. What is COVID-19? It's an inflammatory, it has a tropism for lung tissue specifically. It's targeting the lung tissue, that tendency with this hyper-inflammatory reaction by your immune system is really creating that reaction. So we've got inflammation generated from our thoughts and our fear and our worry coupled with Exposure to an inflammatory, a pro-inflammatory creating virus. What do you think is going to happen? Four, COVID-19 infections activate immune inflammatory pathways as well, as I just mentioned. Five, as such, psychological distress appears to increase severe reactions to COVID-19. And COVID-19 infections appear to exacerbate psychological distress. All right, again, just got to breathe on that, all right? Again, keep it in your pocket. Keep it in the heart pocket. We are capable. We are resilient. We are so much more than we see here on paper, all right? But our mind is incredibly powerful, and it is, in fact, leading to worse health outcomes. We are, in fact, losing more lives as a result of our psychological dysfunction, as a result of what we've been inundated with by the media. There's nothing but fear. There's nothing but you are not capable. There's nothing but you are going to die. You are going to kill your grandmother. You're going to kill somebody. There's nothing about what you can do to make yourself more resilient except isolate yourself, which again, your genes 
the human design, your genes expect you to connect with other humans. As soon as you take that away, we start to break down. We start to lose our health. We've got study after study after study demonstrating this. So where's the nuance? Where do we draw the line to where our isolation creates more sickness? Because what we've done, and I just want us to, again, keep this in that pocket. What we've done is a social experiment we've never done before in the history of humanity. We've never done this before. We've never shut our society down. We've never had mandated isolation for people who aren't sick. We've never done this. So the, the problem is that we're acting as though this is the solution, even though it's never been done before. You understand? Like, that's, that's crazy. So we didn't keep it in context that this is an experiment. We don't know. And also, we didn't bring into the equation, what are the ramifications if we isolate people? If we take children out of school and shut the schools down, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to the psychological well-being of our children? And what I wanted to share with you is my son, Jordan, just the other day, he showed me a video from St. Louis, Missouri, where we're from. And it was on the local news there, you know, our favorite local news channel. And it was a segment talking about the skyrocketing rates of suicide at the high school that he went to, Lafayette High School, where I went as well, Lafayette and Marquette High School in St. Louis, Missouri. Lafayette's ranked as the number two school in the state. Wonderful, churning out professional athletes, you know, people just doing amazing things in the world. All right, I'm a product. I'm a product of that Lafayette, all right? But the news segment was done reporting the shocking level of suicide by students. Of the approximately 800 students surveyed, approximately 500 of those students thought about killing themselves. And nobody's talking about it. That's why I was so, that's shining that tiny little keychain light on the subject, putting it on the news. I was overjoyed to see it because my sons lost friends to suicide. What do you think is going to happen when we take students away from other people, from their peers? And so, again, and it can be an altruistic thing. It's not, I'm not saying that, that that wasn't a possibility for protection. But here in the state of California, as the, one of the latest reports, and this was back around September when I saw the latest reports, here in the state of California, which again, highest rates of, of confirmed infections, deaths, et cetera, only one child below the age of 18 lost their lives with a supposed confirmed case of SARS-CoV-2, only one. Not to one is too much, but that's not what the media would let you know. It's just out here indiscriminately taking out lives. So we know that kids are not especially susceptible, but then people come in, well, what about the Kawasaki? It's like the Kawasaki disease, right, for kids. They start trying to find ways to make it right, but not looking at, okay, what is the potential damage being done? And so the other day, on Instagram, which if you're not following me on the gram, I'm there now. Like I'm, I'm there doing the thing. I'm at Sean Model, S-H-A-W-N Model. On the gram, I shared just a handful of the peer-reviewed studies that we now have looking at how this is affecting our children. 
There's so many, it's overwhelming. One of them, published in the journal Pediatrics, looked at suicide ideation and attempts in a pediatric emergency department before and during COVID-19. The results were not good. Another study, and this was published in the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health. And this study was titled Children's Anxiety and Factors Related to COVID-19 Pandemic. The results were not good. Another study published in the Archives of Disease and Childhood titled Longitudinal Increases in Childhood Depression Symptoms During the COVID-19 Lockdown. Again, the results were not good. Another study published in BMC Public Health titled Early Effects of the COVID-19 Pandemic on Physical Activity and Sedentary Behavior in Children Living in the United States. It was not good. And another one published in the International Journal of Disaster Risk Reduction titled How is COVID-19 Pandemic Impacting Mental Health of Children and Adolescents? Not good. If you talk with health professionals, they were seeing far more children in hospital beds from attempted suicide and filling more coffins from suicide than from this virus. Shouldn't they be taken into consideration when making mandates? Shouldn't our children be taken into consideration when determining what their futures are gonna look like? How is this affecting them psychologically? Not just now, the way that things are going, we're creating a generation of humans who don't have proper mental and social development. Literally your brain at this point, when you're in elementary school, for example, every single week, there are important cognitive situations and development that's taking place to understand other humans and behavior and how to be in the world. And you're laying down more myelin, creating these neurological pathways of behavior. And what if all of a sudden that's cut off? What happens to the human brain if it's not able to develop in those stages? Man, we got to talk about this stuff. You know, again, I'm standing for that. And I hope that you are too, because truly enough is enough. This is, this is outrageous. We've got to do something to take all of these pieces, especially for our children. They don't have a voice. They don't have a say in this situation. We are the ones determining what's going to happen to them. The people making decisions are making decisions for themselves. Most often, unfortunately, this is the case. So, of course, you know, some folks listening, you might have it come up. Well, this was to protect the teachers, it's to protect the grandparents at home. All of these pieces need to be taken into consideration. How do we go about this in an ethical way where we're not destroying the lives of our children who haven't even had a chance to live their life? We've got to take it all into consideration. Now, going back to, again, some of the latest data here, there are two additional studies highlighted in brain behavior and immunity that demonstrated how mood disorders dramatically increase COVID-19 risk and potentially make your body's disease response equal to that of an elderly person. Well noted to be the demographic who's disproportionately susceptible to COVID-19 you could be 25 years old, but a mood disorder, excessive stress, fear, and worry increases your risk, making you as if you're an elderly person. We've got data on this now. Again, it doesn't matter how healthy you are. The researchers noted how mood disorders, stress, worry, fear, anxiety 
can create abnormal senescence in your T lymphocytes, so another aspect of your immune system protecting you. They noted how fear, stress, worry, anxiety, mood disorders create dysfunction in immune system memory cells and increase pro-inflammatory cytokines. One of the symptoms associated with COVID-19 are these cytokine storms. Cytokine storms, right? Reminds me of the X-Men, shout out the storm. Right? So it's like that happening. It's happening in the body, cytokine storm. But you're not, so you're hearing that symptom associated with COVID-19, the cytokine storms, but you're not hearing about how stress, fear, and poor mental health are creating cytokine storms of their own. You're not hearing that. You get it together, what do you think's gonna happen? What do you think's gonna, what, is the, what are the outcomes going to be when somebody is absolutely terrified of contracting this virus and they get it? We have the virus itself and then we have the associated psychology. Man, it starts to get really bad. Now, scientists in one of the studies titled Using Psychoneuroimmunity Against COVID-19 Using psychoneuroimmunity against COVID-19, using our minds that controls our immune system against COVID-19, stated, we need to, quote, address both physical and biopsychosocial aspects of this infection, as well as the psychoneuroimmunity of preventative strategies of healthy lifestyle, regular exercise, balanced nutrition, quality sleep, and a strong connection with people. They go on to say that social distancing and wearing masks might help us from pathogen exposure. Yet these measures also prevent us from expressing compassion, from friendliness, from humanness. Therefore, all forms of psychological support should be routinely implemented, not only to consider psychological resilience, but also to enhance psychoneuroimmunity against COVID-19, unquote. Healthy lifestyle, regular exercise, balanced nutrition, quality sleep, and a strong connection with people. These are all crucial factors that impact our physical, mental, and emotional state, controlling our psychoneuroimmunity. There are literally thousands of studies on the ways that nutrition, exercise, sleep, and healthy human connection impacts our immune system, mental health, resilience against disease, and recovery after disease onset. Yet, less than 1% of the media coverage is highlighting the critical need to address these things. There's nothing that's been promoted or talked about. There's nothing you can do but wear a mask, isolate yourselves, and wait for a vaccine to save you. But even then, the vaccine isn't enough. You still need to stay away from others. You still need to wear a mask, not just one mask, but now they're saying wear two or three and continue to live in 24-7 fear. You're not enough. You can't survive this. You're not okay. Another report, coronavirus and its nocebo effect. Social scientist Achal Sharma shared in a report that the nocebo effect is possibly more powerful than the flu virus, in that it compromises your immune system before you've even had a chance to catch the actual virus. Now listen to what he says in relationship to COVID-19. Quote, 
What happens to your external environment is not under your control. However, your response to it definitely is. Coronavirus is the scare of this decade, which has affected the planet in all of its facets. Panic has struck at all levels of society and people are running to buy sanitizers and face masks. People do not need to panic in such a situation. I would rather suggest them to be calm as the strongest immunity to any external situation, including this virus, is very much within you. Your own mind is the best tool for assisting you in prevention and treatment of coronavirus. As your mind controls the energy in your body, when you are in panic or fear, you tend to weaken your immune system. As endergonic energy reactions in your body tend to release cortisol, the stress hormone. However, as you think positive, the reverse reaction takes place and you can fight the virus with a better immunity. Should you even get affected with the virus, your positive perspective will help you heal faster, unquote. Again, that's from social scientist, Achal Sharma, I'm talking about the coronavirus and its nocebo effect. Again, the nocebo effect is getting a negative injunction from an authority figure, the television, the, the media, the news. That's an authority figure for most people. They believe every word coming out of their favorite reporter's mouth. They believe every word coming out of the physician who's highlighted on the news. Every word coming out of the mouth of their physician. Oftentimes, most people, there's no filter. There's no questioning. And most people don't realize. So a, plac a placebo, if you're wondering, like, what is a nocebo? A placebo, many people have heard about. This is when you get a positive injunction that you're going to have a therapeutic effect from a, quote, fake drug or surgery or just a sham treatment, right? So somebody believes they're in a clinical trial. They believe that they're taking a drug that's going to lower their blood pressure. They believe they're taking a drug that's going to normalize their blood sugar. They believe they're taking a drug that's going to reduce their symptoms of depression. The list goes on and on. And what most people don't realize is that placebos are 33% effective in clinical trials on average. Just the belief that this drug is going to have a therapeutic effect on your blood sugar, for example, people's blood sugar normalizes. Diabetics, their blood sugar normalizes. Taking a placebo, a fake drug. Again, overall, in Placebo-controlled trials, placebos, they have to be controlled. They have to be accounted for in clinical trials because they're so effective. 33% effective on average. The belief, that's how powerful our minds are. When I said earlier at the beginning of the show, your brain is the most powerful pharmacy. Your mind is the most powerful pharmacy in the world. I'm not saying that lightly. I'm not joking. It really is. You're producing chemicals made to order just for you based off of your perception. All right, so again, keep that in the pocket. Keep it in the heart pocket because this is important. All right, placebos, incredibly effective. The nocebo effect, which I talked about in association in that post that I shared with a physician who was saying that if you leave outside your door, you're putting yourself in front of a firing squad. I shared a couple of studies one of them published in the Journal of Clinical and Diagnostic Research, talking about how doctors can improve their communication skills. 
and another one published in Frontiers in Pharmacology titled Nocebo Effects and Negative Suggestion in Clinical Practice and how doctors, people in positions of power, are creating worse health outcomes for their patients. They're inflicting harm with haphazard use of their language. And it's all documented. So a peer-reviewed study published in 2012 reiterated how negative suggestion by physicians can have significant neurobiological effects and incite symptoms of illness. Again, this is not a joke. This is not something to take lightly. This is not something to brush under the rug. This is not something to ignore. This is having a massive impact on our society. And it's going to continue to long into the future is how we're designed. But the ramifications of what we've been through. And here's the thing again. You could, anybody who's truly skilled in this field and not looking at the human body or the human being, the human mind and body in parts separating each other, like there's this part over here, this part over there, who understands truly what holistic health is, which just means the whole, how everything is interconnected. At the beginning of this thing, you could see it coming from a mile away. You could see it coming, what's going to happen with suicide rates of children. You could see it coming. We've got data on it. And it all is played out. We could see it coming. One of the earlier shows that I did showed the skyrocketing rates in the consumption and purchase of processed foods. There were processed food companies. One of the big ones was going out of, out of business. They were uh, filing for bankruptcy. They're in business now, baby. They didn't miss a step. COVID hit, shot their sales right up. I could see it coming before the reports came out. Wow, there's going to be a massive increase in sedentary behavior. Sure enough, that's what the data shows now. We didn't have to wait around to have data on these things. It's obvious. When you tell people to stay in their homes or they're going to die, they're going to put themselves in front of a firing squad, we already have a sedentary population in the first place. Now it's just going to make it worse. Now it's just going to make the susceptibility to infection worse. Every mandate, every suggestion to social distance or to wear a mask, every time on the news, they could have also said, hey, make sure that you still get, you know, a thousand steps in a day. Get a 10-minute walk in today. Your immune system is really going to need it. Your lymphatic system, it's kind of extracellular waste management system where a lot of your immune system is like regulating, doing its job. It doesn't move unless you move. You've got to move. Your lymphatic system doesn't have a pump. Your circulatory system, you know, you've got your heart, so you could sit there, your blood's still going to move around. Not very well. Arteries, you know, all that. You've got a system that can move the blood around. But the lymphatic system, it doesn't move unless you move. We're crippling our citizens by telling them to do nothing. It's unethical, and I'm done. The only way this changes is if we change it. We have to stop tolerating this nonsense. These are basic human needs. Your genes need you to move. You need to exercise. You need to walk. Your genes expect you to eat real food. And yet now, our citizens already the most unhealthy nation in the world by far. Over 200 million citizens here in the United States overweight or obese. 43% of our citizens clinically obese right now we're on pace just within the next couple of years to have half of the United States population to be clinically obese. It's like that movie, Wally. -E. Have you seen that movie? I think it's Pixar, Wally. -E. 
that's definitely going to be a nice family film to check out to see what I'm talking about. But it's like that movie. We become so sedentary, so immersed and inundated with processed food and synthetic meat. Billy G, Billy Gates, he's trying to get that synthetic meat in you. True story. But you see, humans become so devolved that they can't even walk on their own two feet anymore. They have to be floating around in these mechanical chairs. They get you constant, you know, access to your favorite beverages and food and entertainment. Don't let this happen to us. We've got to stand for change right now. Now, again, the study that I talked about earlier titled Using Psychoneuroimmunity Against COVID-19 highlighted the importance of healthy lifestyle, regular exercise, balanced nutrition, quality sleep, strong connection to people to protect us from COVID-19 infections and also to reduce severe symptoms if you contract this virus or any other virus. Nutrition support, what does that look like? This is, again, very basic, simple stuff. Eating real food, for example, because your immune cells are made from the food that you eat. They're made from the, do you want some like really robust, healthy, like, you know, that asparagus, like coming through spears, like swords, chopping up pathogens? Or do you want your immune cells rolling up like Butterfingers candy, right? Butter, fingers. Right? Everything looks good, butter fingers. She got she got them hands, man. Do you which which immune cells do you have? You get to choose. You get to make yourself. I'm just butterfingers was my that was my jam with the candy bar. It's because of Bart Simpson. Right? It's commercial. You know, shout out to, to Bart Simpson. Anyways, but we get to choose what our immune cells are made of. But there are things that we've got, again, mountains of data showing how they can improve the health of our immune system and also help us to modulate and deal with stress. Because we're all, even if we've got stress management practices, even if we're aware of the stuff we're talking about today, it's still going to affect us because the world is so twisted and abnormal. But a study published in Biomedical Research found that test subjects with a variety of health complaints, including anxiety and poor sleep quality, they were given a lion's mane medicinal mushroom or placebos for four weeks. This is a placebo-controlled study. The participants who used the lion's mane significantly reduced levels of stress, significantly reduced levels of irritation and anxiety compared to those in the placebo group. I just had it today. Lion's mane. You can get the lion's mane, but here's the thing. You don't just get any random lion's mane. You need to get it from the right place that's dual extracted. It needs to be dual extracted and organic. Of course, you don't want your lion's mane coming along with pesticides and herbicides and like fillers and binders and all that stuff that can suppress your immune system, create more stress. This is why I get my lion's mane and also my lion's mane coffee. So it's organic coffee infused with lion's mane. That's what I had today from Four Sigmatic. All right, go to foursigmatic.com forward slash model. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash model. And you get 10% off, 15% off, depending on how many of the the medicinal mushrooms you get, you get different discounts, all right? But definitely one of my favorite things and so much clinical evidence and the benefits with lion's mane and really helping to regulate and support your nervous system and helping you to modulate stress. Lion's mane has been proven. It's one of the very few things that's shown to be neuroprotective and help stimulate neurogenesis, 
right? So we could definitely use some more, some more brain cells right now, for sure. You know, I think there's a little bit of a lack of brain cells. We got those butterfinger brain cells out there in the streets. So let's change this around. So uh, that's just one thing. But also, again, foursigmatic.com forward slash model, right? Definitely check out their Lion's Mane Coffee and their Lion's Mane Elixir. Now, what else can we do? The mind-body effects, this is bi-directional. You know, again, we've highlighted how your mind inherently affects your immune system, but also what's going on with your immune system and the stress that it's under can have some ramifications on your, on your mind and your thoughts and your feelings and your associated emotions. And it can get into some vicious circles. And so stress reduction and positive effect associated with things like, what do we do here? Meditation can undo many of the psychological reactions leading to inflammation and reduced immune function brought on by negative emotions and stress. A study highlighted in the journal OBM Integrative and Complementary Medicine demonstrated that different forms of meditation result in an increase in your natural killer cells and your B cells, so another immune system weapon. But we've talked about how important the NK cells are specifically already. So we get these enhanced immune parameters from having a meditation practice, right? Something to help us to modulate stress right now. And again, you this can do like a formal meditation thing. Maybe you've got you know a meditation class or a video you can watch or an app. There's so much that we have access to. Or maybe just you know putting on certain music, or maybe it's like a movement type meditation. You know, a relaxing yoga session or qigong. The list goes on and on. But something to help us to modulate stress because that helps to fortify our immune system. Now, one of the other big stress reducers is your sleep quality. Data published in the journal Psychoneuroendocrinology found that sleep-deprived individuals directly reduce the production and performance of their NK cells. Come on. Getting good sleep is more important than ever right now, but when have you heard any of the media reports about that? That's not what they do. We're bad guys, it's what we do. Shout out to the Suicide Squad. They're bad guys, it's what they do. It's what they do. They don't care about what real health is. So what are we doing right now to make sure that we're getting optimal sleep? Also, what about reducing inflammation and enhancing our immunity? Scientists from the Department of Neurology at USC found that the active ingredient in turmeric Curcumin is able to eliminate metabolic waste and reduce inflammation. We're talking about a pro-inflammatory condition. We're talking about pre-inflamed individuals because of the stress, anxiety, worry. Those things create inflammation in our body. This is a fact. Curcumin is one of those really fascinating things. Turmeric is one of those powerful things that can help to reduce inflammation. There are so many studies on this, it's crazy. Now, something that's really noteworthy about turmeric is that it's also been revealed to improve the function of your resident macrophage cells that operate as the front line of your immune system. It's pretty cool. So couple that with, for our enhanced immunity, there was a new study published in the BMJ, one of the most prestigious journals, finding that COVID-19 ICU risk is 20-fold higher in people who are deficient in vitamin D. We've been talking about this for quite some time now, the importance of vitamin D. All right, it's such a regulatory, it's really, it's not a vitamin in that kind of conventional sense. It really operates as a hormone in an in a immune system regulator 
a circadian regulator, and 20-fold greater incidence of ending up in the ICU if you're deficient in vitamin D. Both of these together, plus some of the most potent vitamin C dense superfoods is in one of my favorite products that I utilize several times a week, Organifi Immunity, all right? Organifi Immunity. It's incredible. It's got, like, I love it because these are the formulas that if I was to create a formula, these are the things I would add. I wouldn't add synthetic vitamin C. I would add it from whole foods, from vitamin C dense superfoods like acerola cherry, for example. And so you combine that with the earth-grown source of vitamin D, right? So we're getting everything from earth-grown sources and not synthetic nutrients. Plus turmeric is in there as well. You put all that together, man, it's such a great formula. Definitely pop over and check it out. It's Organifi.com forward slash model. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash model. You get 20% off their immunity product. You get 20% off everything they carry, but I think the immunity, of course, is of particular importance right now. And again, it's got the turmeric, it's got the high quality, earth-grown nutrient source of vitamin C from superfoods, vitamin D, and so much more. It's really, really great product. Check it out, Organifi.com forward slash model. Now let's jump into one of the most important topics of the day. And I think this is really gonna blow your mind. Now, if you've been wondering why all of these incredible studies that we've been accumulating for decades, and also the recent ones specifically targeting the effects of COVID-19, why the studies demonstrating the importance of our nutrition and sleep quality and movement and all these different things and managing stress, the psychological impact, why aren't these the things that are highlighted on social media, on major news? Now, many of you might be aware that a lot of the signs around those things have been censored. And now we have something, and this isn't just hearsay, it isn't a theory, it truly is. And now we have a study that was published in one of the most prestigious journals in the world, the BMJ, and this was just published recently. The title of the study is COVID-19, Politicization, Corruption, and Suppression of Science. One of the things the study highlighted was an incident that took place in the UK, and this was published in the BMJ as well. And this report uncovered that the government there procured an antibody test that in real world tests fell significantly well short of performance claims by its manufacturer, right? So somebody was getting paid off of tests that did not perform as they were advertised. We're talking tens of millions of dollars were in play. Hundreds of millions of dollars are in play when it comes to these tests. But these aren't things that you regularly hear about on the news. You just hear about, you know, all the stuff that's being done, they're working on this, they're working on that, but there's a lot of manipulation that's going on behind the scenes that's driven by politics and not by science. And real science is continually being suppressed. The study stated that politicians often claim to follow the science, but that is a misleading oversimplification. Science is rarely absolute. That's important that this statement is very important what I just said. Science is rarely absolute. It rarely applies to every setting or every population. It doesn't make sense to slavishly follow science or evidence. A better approach is for politicians, the publicly appointed decision makers, 
to be informed and guided by science when they decide policy for their public. But even that approach retains public and professional trust only if the science is available for scrutiny and free of political interference. And if the system is transparent and not compromised by conflicts of interest. Government appointees are able to ignore or cherry pick science, another form of misuse of the words, follow the science, and indulge in anti-competitive practices that favor their own products and those of friends and associates. There's a lot of that going on. I've seen, again, those few times I've caught news reports, I've just happened to see it here in the state of California. People who've been elected to political office benefiting off of the shutdowns benefiting off the stimulus money coming in from the overarching government. So moving on with this study, with this report, again, published in the BMJ, stating that science is a public good. It doesn't need to be followed blindly, but it does need to be fairly considered. Importantly, suppressing science, whether by delaying publication, cherry picking favorable research, or gagging scientists, is a danger to public health, causing deaths by exposing people to unsafe or ineffective interventions and preventing them from benefiting from better ones. They're talking about this because it's happening at mass scale. They're talking about this because this is going on. When entangled with commercial decisions, it is also maladministration of taxpayers' money. Politicization of science was enthusiastically deployed by some of history's worst autocrats and dictators, and it is now regrettably commonplace in democracies. The medical political complex tends towards suppression of science to aggrandize and enrich those in power. And as the powerful become more successful, richer and further intoxicated with power, the inconvenient truths of science are suppressed. When good science is suppressed, people die. There's so much here to unpack, but I'm so grateful that a major journal had the audacity to publish this. It shouldn't even be surprising or controversial or courageous for them to do it. It's just the right thing because this is going on. When we get into a situation, as they mentioned, where science is being utilized, but it's not subject to scrutiny, it's only one flavor of science that fits into the popular narrative. And if there's anything that contradicts that, it gets censored. It's a sick, twisted thing that's happening. And it's happening far more than you realize. So much so that, again, one of the most prestigious journals in the world published this report talking about the corruption going on and how science is being censored. Science should never be censored, ever. That's not science. Everything should be questioned. And like they said, this was very important as well, that science is rarely absolute. Just bask in the glow of that. Just let that, just let that rain down on you like that SWV song. All right, just bask in the glow of science is rarely absolute. Because I promise you, every study that we've got affirming something, we can find data showing the opposite. We've got to take it all into consideration. And with that, we've got to take in the consideration of the situation itself. 
Because as I mentioned as well, it's rarely applicable. Science is rarely applicable to every setting and to every population. Things have to be case dependent. They have to be dependent upon the situation, upon the individual. When we get this one size fits all approach to something, that's when you know some bad things are going to happen. And that's what's happened. So having science available for scrutiny, for discussion, but for, again, because we're allowing it, major entities are suppressing science, they're suppressing the opinions of literally people who've won the Nobel Prize, saying things that are contradictory to the popular narrative, censoring their videos, censoring and shutting down their social media accounts, not inviting them to the forums of popular media. Unless you're a certain political party, then you're going to put on the scientists that affirm your belief. I've seen it. It's crazy. I've seen it. And you've probably seen it as well. So some of the things I want to unpack here for us are the things that aren't being talked about and the aspects of the science that's been promoted to be effective that hasn't been put under scientific scrutiny. And when it has, the outcomes have been so far from what you've heard, but then you don't get the chance to actually hear about the results of these studies. We're gonna go through some of that right now. One of the things not being talked about is the rates of COVID infections and cases in healthcare workers. Now, I want you to listen to this, it's very important. Every single day, and just shout out to everybody, shout out to everybody listening, physicians, nurses, people doing work in coding, who message me, who send emails and DMs every day, sharing their stories of what they're seeing and giving me some type of love because I'm, I'm simply sharing the data as well that they're seeing firsthand because very few people are actually doing it. Shout out to everybody. Shout out to all of our incredible healthcare workers. Thank you, truly. This issue here is not being talked about. A meta-analysis published by the CDC where they're putting, if you post anything that has anything to do with what's going on, they put a little CDC thing over your stuff, directing people to the CDC, as if people are actually gonna read the CDC studies. I will, I love it, I love it. A meta-analysis published by the CDC uncovered that 6% of adults hospitalized with COVID-19 in the United States are healthcare workers, disproportionately the biggest demographic of people who are ending up hurt by this virus. Now, you might think on the surface, of course, that's because they're there, they're on the front lines. But there are some problems, there's some nuance here that's not being talked about. Number one, of the healthcare workers hospitalized with COVID-19, 90% of them had at least one underlying pre-existing chronic disease, 90%, of which obesity was most commonly reported. Among healthcare workers hospitalized with COVID-19, nearly 75% were obese. Don't just say just because they're on the front line. There's a susceptibility here, highlighted, and it's not being talked about. Many of the healthcare workers hospitalized, please listen to this, please hear this. Many of the healthcare workers hospitalized had two or more pre-existing chronic diseases. 41% having hypertension, 31% having diabetes, as well as a plethora of other conditions. Despite the very best 
PPE. Healthcare workers are by far the profession with the highest rate of hospitalizations. And we see the same thing as the general population. The healthcare workers with pre-existing lifestyle-related chronic diseases were the ones contracting infections and being hospitalized far more frequently. Healer, heal thyself. This system doesn't care about you. This system doesn't care about the healthcare workers. These folks are subjected. It's like a badge of honor going through medical school, going through nursing school to absolutely demolish your health. And very rarely do the health professionals pull themselves out of that training, pull themselves out of that self-destruction, the sleep deprivation, the poor nutrition. Do you understand? I just shared some of the statistics. 90% of the healthcare workers who are the, this is the biggest population of people who are being hospitalized with COVID-19. 90% of them had at least one underlying medical condition. Our healthcare system, our training of health doesn't actually teach health. It doesn't train healthcare professionals on what health is. The top cardiologists in the world. I know these guys, these are my friends, these are my colleagues, top gastroenterologists, top neuroscientists, the list goes on and on. Top cardiologists who I'm thinking about right now, award-winning, he's got just so many accolades. And he made a shift after being in his practice for quite some time because of all of the damage that he was seeing and people not getting better. And he made a shift and he started to finally look at the number one thing that was not taught in school, which was the number one thing to help his patients. And this is the thing. So he went to school for about 12 years to become this incredibly prestigious cardiologist. Not at any point being educated on the fact that the organ that he's treating, because he specializes in conditions of the heart, the blood, arteries, right? Not once was he educated on the fact that his heart, that he's treating in his patient, their heart is made from the food that they've eaten. The very cells that make up that heart is made from food. The blood that he's trying to treat running through their veins is made from food. The arteries themselves, the veins are made from food. Our cellular building blocks, what makes up all of these things is made from food, yet he learned nothing about food. He had a two-week seminar on nutrition, and it wasn't anything remotely close to what's accurate and supportive of patients. What happens is somebody's coming in, they've got high blood pressure, they've got high cholesterol. They say, hey, you know, why? this is what's typically happened for the past couple of decades. So the patient comes in, they've got hypertension, you know, they've got high blood pressure, they've got high cholesterol, and then they start giving them the cookie cutter things that they learned in college or just from random articles. Hey, make sure you lower your fat. Watch your fat. Lower your fat content. Not understanding how important fat is for building their blood. Not understanding how important the fat, fat is for making the cells of the heart. How important fat is for creating the cells of your brain that regulate all this stuff. Just reduce, haphazardly reduce the fat. They know nothing. They know nothing of the thing, the very organ that they treat. They don't even know what it's made of. Do you understand how fundamentally flawed that is and dangerous? We have to make a shift. Our system of healthcare pays no attention to health because it pays no attention to food. 
the very thing that you're made of. If we've got a neurologist, if you've got a neuroscientist studying the brain, if they don't understand that the brain is made of food, they're missing the point. If we've got somebody who's, you know, an endocrinologist and they're not understanding that the thyroid is made from the food that person is eating, we're missing the point. We have to understand the very foundation of what our bodies are made of, which is food. So I wanted to highlight that study because it's not getting enough attention. This, again, this is from the CDC, the very source that people keep getting directed to. And nobody's looking at the underlying thing. They're just assuming that, you know, our healthcare workers are victims of being there on the front line. There's nothing they can do about it. But not talking about the fact that 90% of the people hospitalized, healthcare professionals, had at least one pre-existing chronic disease, lifestyle-related chronic disease. The Journal of the American Medical Association, 2018, published a study after taking in all of this data that poor diet is the number one cause of our chronic conditions here in the United States, our epidemic levels of chronic diseases. All right, so we've got to do something about this. So where else is science being censored and not being scrutinized and not being talked about different dynamics and different angles of it? And how, again, my point is we need to help our healthcare professionals. We need to have a system that actually takes care of them. Is that too much to ask? We need a system that trains them on what real health is so that they can take care of themselves. It should just seem obvious, but that's not how our system is built. And this is the same system of medicine that we're looking to to fix the situation right now. Please, it's not going to happen. It's not happening. We've got to change it. It's all fluxed up right now. So it's an opportunity. I said flux, guys, flux. It's all fluxed up. We've got an opportunity to actually change it. It's more malleable right now, but we've got to step up. We cannot allow this to keep happening. Now, another thing, and I've been sharing data on this again since very early on because I went into the data to find out how is this appropriate? What, what is the appropriate context to utilize this preventative metric and make sure that we don't venture into the ridiculous and start depending on something that doesn't help and people die because of it. Thinking that this is a solution and it's not, I didn't want that to happen. All right, so I shared the data early on. Now we've got all of the data compiled together. And again, this was published. This is a study conducted by the CDC. All right, again, I'm using, this is, this is where they're directing people to, all right? Research conducted by the CDC. Set out to find why cases of COVID-19 have continued to skyrocket even with extremely high mask compliance. The scientists conducted a randomized controlled trial, which is the gold standard of scientific testing. In one group, they gathered data from a random selection of symptomatic people with confirmed cases of SARS-CoV-2. Just took a random selection of people with, this is directly, we're not talking about any type of other virus, we're talking about specifically confirmed cases of SARS-CoV-2. And then they had another group who they used as a comparison. They gathered a collection of people who were symptomatic, who tested negative for SARS-CoV-2. So they're symptomatic of some type of other infection. So these are still sick people, but they don't have COVID-19. Both groups were sick with some type of infection, but here's what they found out about people who'd contracted COVID-19. After compiling the data and looking at the behavior and utilizing masks, for both sets 
of study participants. The researchers discovered that over 70% of the people who contracted COVID-19 were people who strictly adhered to the mask mandates and always wore their mask. 70% of the people who contracted COVID-19 always wore their mask, but they contracted it anyways. Versus the folks who said they never wore a mask being just 4% of the cases. 70% were people who always wore the mask. People who said they never wore a mask, only 4% of the cases. In fact, if you combine the folks in the study who said they always wore a mask with people who said they often wore their mask, that was 85% of the people who got infected. But the media would tell you that it's the people who are out there, the anti-maskers, they're super spreading. The vast majority of people who are getting COVID are people who are always wearing their mask. We got to talk about this. Something is awry. Something's not adding up. And these are the things that get suppressed. But it exists. It exists. Well, what the researchers were trying to find, again, is just like people are wearing their mask, but they're still getting infections. What's the behavior that's happening? Because clearly the mask must work, right? They must work. So they discovered that the people who, and this, they were just trying to find something other than the mask not being effective for folks still getting COVID-19, even though they were always wearing the mask. And so what they discovered was that the people who contracted COVID-19 were more likely to go out to eat and take their mask off to put food in their mouth. And the study did mention that eating while wearing a mask is not very effective, right? So... Just, yeah, they haven't figured that out yet. You know, I guess you could do like remote diffusion and push the food through the mask somehow, I don't know. But anyway, so they point that out. But here's the thing, they found that the people who contracted COVID were more likely to go out to eat. So that's gotta be the reason. And so that was their justification. But unfortunately, people who read the study might miss the data right in front of their face because the other group who didn't have confirmed cases of COVID, but who were symptomatic with another illness, they didn't go out to eat as much. And yet they still got sick with something. And that's what can be overlooked in this study. The control group who did not have confirmed cases of COVID-19, but were folks who were symptomatic with something, which could have been influenza, could have been a bacterial infection. The bottom line is their mask didn't protect them either because almost 75% of these folks reported that they strictly adhered to the mask mandates and always wore their mask, yet they still got sick. 75% of the people randomly selected always wore their mask, yet they still got sick versus just 3% of the people who said they never wore a mask getting sick. Something is wrong. The numbers are so skewed. The numbers are so vastly different. It's unbelievable. We have to talk about it. This was supposed to be the thing that protects you, but not just protect you, protect other people from you. And that's another twisted way that things have been framed and it's unscientific. There's no, absolutely no data to affirm that, but what people see is like, follow the science, there's all the studies. No, there every single randomized controlled trial in the real world, which is important because a lot of the, the science people say, follow the science. And I've went and broken down many of these studies here on the show and also I've been doing posts about them because I want to find some effectiveness of masks. It's contrary to popular belief, I want it to, but every randomized controlled trial 
demonstrate that they're not effective. So things that have a specific, a randomized controlled trial has a specific implement and a specific result. Whereas a lot of the data that you're hearing out there about them being effective are based on observational studies and comparative studies. Observational studies are just sometimes just finding coincidences that sometimes they can be good science, but then it needs further investigation, but just coincidences, but then the coincidences can lead us to finding the coincidence that we want and not the thing that we don't want. And so it's, it can be difficult for people to believe that I would look for a way that this belief is wrong, you know, that I'm looking for real world studies showing that masks are effective, but that's what I did. That's what a, any good scientist would do. You've gotta be open to being wrong. But, and I want you to hear this very clearly again, this is one of those things to put in our little, in our heart pocket. Every single randomized controlled trial has demonstrated that masks are not effective in reducing the risk of infection. Every one of them. A meta-analysis that I, that I shared this one back in the day, but we're just going to recap it here. A meta-analysis of 19, 19 randomized controlled trials published in the International Journal of Nursing Studies examined the effectiveness of masks in reducing infections in eight community settings, six healthcare settings, and five as source control. These are in the real world, not guessing, not theoretical models, not done on hamsters, in the real world. And what the study discovered was that, quote, medical masks were not effective and cloth masks were even less effective in preventing the spread of viral infections. Whew. That's what the study found. And we need to be able to, to just talk about this, to discuss it, to have dialogue, to analyze it, to take it into consideration because we've got data showing that, hey, this thing that we're all doing that's supposedly protecting us is not helping. It's not, we're not doing the thing, which is let's focus on getting our citizens healthier. Let's improve the, the overall health and wellness of our society so they're less susceptible to disease. Let's not focus on addressing the psychosomatic issues that's creating the susceptibility to disease. Let's put a mask on, this is gonna work. And at least it looks like you're doing something. Now you become a hero, you put a mask on, and you're, and you're showing that, hey, I'm doing something to help my community. When in fact, you can do something more heroic, which is to reach out to somebody that you care about and see if they're okay. Have conversations, make sure they're eating well, check in and see how they're sleeping. Get with your neighbors and maybe go for a walk, even if you are wearing a mask. Do something truly actionable. We're not doing that because we're taught, we're being told and inundated with this idea that this thing is working and now it's becoming integrated into our culture itself. This is what I was concerned about in the beginning that we don't venture into the realm of the ridiculous and this becomes a new learned behavior that people are in fear just to interact with other humans in the world. Did you even breathe the air outside? It's scary. So I'm saying that to share, you know, in this study again, the study concluded that medical masks were not effective and cloth masks even less effective. And the question is, what the hell is less effective than not, not effective, which I talked about? And it's because they see, saw even higher rates of infection in the people who wore cloth masks. Now, in the conclusion of the study, and this is where it gets into conversation and people start thinking that they've got it all figured out because they cherry pick. They blame a cherry pick when they're cherry picking because it doesn't fit the popular narrative. The conclusion of the study actually says, 
the study suggests that community mask use by well people could be beneficial, particularly for COVID-19, where transmission may be pre-symptomatic. So even here, it's just like, oh, well, it looks like they're saying that it works and it could be beneficial, but these are, th these are theoretical assessments. Their very concrete conclusion from the data was that medical masks, or AKA surgical masks, were not effective and cloth masks were even less effective. Now, when people go and look at this study, which some people do, because you know it's more seeing is believing, but if they're coming through the lens of just trying to find what's wrong and not actually looking at the data in its fullness, you're just gonna find the thing that jumps out that you want that you want it to say. And there's a part of the results that says, in the community, masks appear to be effective with and without hand hygiene. And both together are more protective. For me, just on the surface, I would take that like, okay, wow, we've got some data showing that this is effective in the community. That's cool. But what I do, I, I go and read the references. I go and read the studies that they get that assessment from. And here's what the references actually said. So I went and actually reviewed the studies that found that masks were effective in the community with and without hand washing. And one of them was conducted by the Department of Epidemiology at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. And this was published in PLOS One. And I, again, I took the time, read the study, sat with it, thought about all the pieces, some things just jump out right at you like a scary movie. And this study stated, we also observed substantial 43% reduction in the incidence of influenza infection in the face mask and hand hygiene group compared to the control. Sounds good to me, but this estimate was not statistically significant. Still sounds good to me. Now here's the most important part. The researcher stated that there were no substantial reductions in influenza-like illness or laboratory-confirmed influenza in the face mask-only group compared to the control. The face mask alone did not reduce the rate of infection. I went and actually read the study. There was very small nuanced, allowing a framing to be that it was effective by itself as a metric for preventing infections in a community setting. But if you actually go and read the studies, again, randomized controlled trials, and you see this data, it should be just be like, man, that's, that's crazy. Why don't people know that? So hand washing, I, yeah, hand washing is effective. But even that, where's the nuance? How, how do we not go so far that we hurt ourselves washing our hands and using these hand sanitizers that can start to make our skin even more susceptible to infections? Which many people, like, man, there's so many it's been a skyrocketing rate of people becoming neurotic and in fear and constantly washing their hands and hurting themselves. Like there has to be a balance. So I just wanted to share that with you guys because, you know, looking at this research that we now have and how, especially the study that was published in the BMJ, the COVID-19 politicization, corruption and suppression of science, it is happening. And I just shared with you a perspective about masks that's not being talked about. As a matter of fact, one of the most remarkable studies, which is the one we cover from the CDC, determining that 70% of the people who contracted a SARS-CoV-2 infection always wore their mask. And add that with people who often wear their mask, it was 85%. But the media will tell you it's people who are not abiding by the rules. They're just getting sick. 
They're the ones causing all the problems. But again, the mass is supposed to be, because even with that, even with that, it's still like, okay, well, the mask doesn't prevent you from getting sick, but it prevents you from getting other people sick. So then we'll frame it like that. And that is not proven. There's no data to affirm that. But unfortunately, that's just a theory. It's not proven. There's no data remotely affirming that this is the case. It's still based off a very rudimentary understanding of virus particles and also trying to look at stuff that we can see. You know, we get this cool photography and you can see like somebody coughing and the virus particles or the, I'm sorry, the, not the virus particles. No, no, no. The aerosols and droplets aren't going as far, but they're going out the sides of the mask, above the mask, down below the mask, through the mask still. And with that, you still don't understand that you're not, you're seeing droplets and aerosols. You're not seeing viruses. If you could see the viruses on that imaging, you couldn't see anything else but viruses. There's so many in that in, in the room, you wouldn't see anything else but viruses. Viruses are the most, there's more viruses here on planet Earth than literally anything else. All right, there's more, please understand that. Heart pocket, there's more viruses here on planet Earth than anything else. All right, and so having this idea that, okay, no, we, we've already found out that the masks don't stop me from getting sick in every randomized control trial. But this can help me from getting you sick. And this logic is like, you know, just say you're gonna get busy, all right? It's gonna be a little bit of knocking the boots or um, McLovin or rolling, rolling the hay. You're gonna, you're gonna do it, all right? And it's the same logic of, okay, I've got, I've got a condom here but it has this breathability to it, right? It's got this breathability. It's perforated with a bunch of, you know, openings. So I'm gonna put this condom on. It's not gonna protect me. It's not supposed to protect me, but it's gonna protect you though, all right? Don't worry about it, it's gonna be okay. Trust me, trust the science. That's not how it works. That's not how life works. It doesn't just go one way. It's not just, it, it can't just not be effective at stopping virus particles from getting into the mask. It's also not effective at stopping them from getting out of the mask. You know, and that's what the data actually shows. So now do we have some data affirming the opposite? Yes. And I've went and I've looked for some gold in it, but it keeps coming back. These are observational studies and theoretical models, assuming that they work. But when we look at randomized controlled trials and mass working, this is what we see. Now, instead of acknowledging this, now, folks like Dr. Fauci, because the mask didn't help, are saying double masking, double mask now. We know the mask didn't help, put two on. Matter of fact, put three. I said in the beginning, guys, I said that, hey, the data shows this isn't effective. But instead of admitting that it's not effective, these will say, put on two masks. Put on three masks. Just keep putting on masks till you pass out. What a, listen. And if you think for one instance that double masking or triple masking doesn't come without side effects, let me enlighten you on something. A controlled clinical study published in the journal Antimicrobial Resistance and Infection Control recruited pregnant healthcare workers to wear N95 masks while doing just low intensity activity and the results were shocking. That's why he said double mask to make it more like an N95. 
The study participants wearing the N95 mask reduced their normal volume of air displacement between inhalation and exhalation by 23%. The volume of gas inhaled or exhaled specifically from their lungs each minute was reduced by 25.8%. Their volume of overall oxygen consumption was reduced by 13.8%. It reduced their oxygen. But this gets suppressed. This gets censored. It exists. Welcome to 2020, 2021, where you got to prove that covering your mouth and nose prevents you from breathing normally. We made it. We got all this fancy technology, but we can't understand. Just basic. If I cover my mouth and nose, it's going to stop me from breathing normally. It's going to reduce my oxygen intake. And we got data on it. But the fact checkers, man, who would... The fact checkers will say, hey, it's not proven. Nuh-uh, it doesn't reduce your oxygen intake. I'm not even done yet. The ability to expire carbon dioxide was reduced by 17.7%. That's another thing that's been debunked. The fact checkers like, you have no carbon dioxide rebreathing. You don't got to worry about that. That's not, that's it's fake news. You may think that these effects, even for me, I, when I was reading the study, I was like, well, this must have happened over time, which that was my biggest concern. When I went into the data, Last year, at the beginning of all this, I wanted to make sure that we don't venture into the ridiculous and hurt ourselves doing a metric to save ourselves, doing something to try to save ourselves that actually ends up hurting us. And I thought about just the obvious thing of wearing a mask for an extended amount of time, how that's probably going to get diminishing returns on the benefits and also increasing risk. So I thought this was just because they wore it for a long time, maybe like an hour or like over the course of a work shift. But these results of decreasing their oxygen inhaled and exhaled, specifically from their lungs, by almost 26%, reducing their overall oxygen consumption by almost 14%, and reducing their ability to expire carbon dioxide by almost 18%. All of this happened within 15 minutes of wearing that damn mask. Double mask it. Triple mask, quadruple, go all out. We got to take back control of our minds. This is insanity. It's insanity. The data exists. If it was different, I'd be all for it. I'd be, I'd be a double. I'd be a double. I, I've always liked double. I'm seconds. I'm a seconds kind of guy. If it worked, if it wasn't hurting people, but it's hurting people. Another study published in the journal Ergonomics found that even at low work rates, wearing the mask contributed to significantly higher levels of CO2 rebreathing, with notable side effects such as fatigue, dizziness, headaches, and muscular weakness. That's messed up. That's not okay. Your body is telling you that you are hurting yourself. But these asshats will just tell you it's nothing. It's not proven. It is proven. And focusing on just one of these side effects noted in this study, headaches, when mandated to wear N95 mask, a peer-reviewed study published in 2006 found that almost 40% of healthcare workers developed face mask-associated headaches. Ooh. It's critical for us to realize these symptoms are indicative that our bodies are being harmed. It's critical for us to realize that these reduced levels of oxygen, 
by covering our mouth and nose haphazardly in belief that this is saving us and saving others damages our lungs, damages our heart, damages our brain. Does it seem like people are getting stupider? <laughs> I just thought about Dumb and Dumber. It's Lloyd Christmas out there. This is all Lloyd Christmases. All right. Come on. It's hurting us. It's it literally this oxygen suppression, reducing our ability to breathe through our mouth and nose properly is damaging our freaking brains. It's making us even less likely to look at the data and have a rational understanding of how this stuff works. So I appreciate you guys like riding with me on this. I'm very passionate about it because, you know, again, this type of data exists and it's not being part of the conversation. Even if you don't believe any of this, even if you're just like so firmly like, I'm a triple masker for life and that's the set you're claiming. Listen, all I would want for you is just to take into consideration that this data exists and that it matters. Just take into consideration that this data also exists. Even the data that you have that says other than, which again, I've already went through and used scientific scrutiny because I was looking for the gold. I was looking for how is this actually effective time after time, observational study, comparative study, theoretical model, no randomized controlled trials, meta-analysis of randomized controlled trial what actually happens in the real world when we do this? Every time it shows that it's not effective. Let me share one more with you, just for, just for the chits and the giggles, okay? I said chits. Another study published by the CDC and published in the Annals of Work, Exposure, and Health revealed that by wearing a mask, the highly thermosensitive nature of the face and breathing pathways can be inhibited, leading to increased anxiety, elevated stress hormones, false suffocation alarm in the central nervous system, and panic attacks. Mm, this exists. This exists. This goes back to the very beginning of this episode and looking what's happening with our psychology. We're doing something that's exacerbating panic because this is from the CDC saying clearly we have this highly sensitive, highly thermosensitive nature of the human face. We are not designed. Everything about us wants to keep things away from covering our mouth and nose. They said when your breathing pathways are inhibited, breathing pathways inhibited. Yeah, yeah, that's what happens. Leading to increased anxiety, elevated stress hormones, which suppresses our immune system. So the fact checkers, when they're like, Oh, the mask isn't going to do anything to your immune system. Come on, guys, logic. If you're a fact checker, what happens with elevated stress hormones? What does that do to your immune system? Fact checker? Come on! And also, false suffocation alarm in the central nervous system and panic attacks. All right? This exists, baby. This exists. I'm with you guys. I'm riding with you guys. I'm standing for what's real. I'm standing for us to use our higher order intelligence. This shouldn't be politicized. It shouldn't be anti-masker and masker. It shouldn't be all of this like separation. Everything is so polarized right now. Like you, you get the kit. If you're with this political party, you get the kit. 
If you're with this political party, you get the kit. One of the kits come with masks. Science is not being utilized anymore. It is, this is not how it's supposed to go. So again, I appreciate you guys riding with me on this. I know this has been a lot of information today. And I wanted to share one more thing with you really quickly, which is a statement from uh, Professor Yvonne Kosart at the Department of Infectious Diseases at the University of Sydney. She said, quote, those masks are only effective so long as they are dry. As soon as they become saturated with the moisture in your breath, they stop doing their job and pass on the droplets. Professor Kozart said that it could take as little as 15 to 20 minutes after which the mask would need to be changed. But those warnings have not been shared with the public or even been allowed to be discussed for that matter. Any scientific evidence that doesn't fit into the popular narrative is constantly being censored. We cannot allow it. We cannot allow it. Enough is enough. And this is just speaking to logic again, you know, because when the mask is getting wet and the, mo you know, the moisture retention, you're basically creating a wet microclimate inside the mask. And knowing that that reduces the, the effectiveness of the mask and actually extends the ability, improves the ability of virus particles to move in and out of the mask once, once, it's, once it's wet. You are a water-based being. As you're breathing into the mask, you're creating a wet environment. It's not just like you go outside and you're like having a water balloon fight and the mask get wet and then all of a sudden it doesn't work. It's not working just within a short amount of time, even if it could work, because we're a water-based being and we're breathing out and we're creating that moisture in the mask. It's not being talked about. Last piece, and I couldn't leave you without sharing this because uh, a few folks have been talking about this and posting about this, but I really want to unpack what it really means. And this was a randomized controlled trial published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, looking at a specific implement for COVID-19 in a population that normally wouldn't use masks, that hasn't had a history of using masks, if adding masks as a metric to help to prevent the spread of infection of this particular disease. And this was done, this is the Danish study. All right, so this is the Danish study. So this one has been passed around a little bit. We're gonna unpack what it means. The objective of the study was to determine whether surgical mask use outside of the home reduces wearer's risk of SARS-CoV-2 infection. A total of 3,030 participants were randomly assigned to the recommendation to wear masks, and 2,994 were assigned as the control group not wearing a mask. 4,862 completed the study. Infections with SARS-CoV-2 occurred in 1.8% of participants who wore masks. And SARS-CoV-2 infections occurred in 2.1% of control participants who didn't wear a mask. The difference between the group was 0.3%. Not 3%, 0.3%. The scientists stated, quote, the difference was not statistically significant, clearly. But this is what's different. This is what's different with the model health show. It's what different what we do. We dive deeper. There were several other additional unplanned results that were found in the study. If you go and you actually want to look at all the different pieces and sit with it, right? We've got a, a society that's very much based on data. There's so much information and data. We're just here today, gone today, scan, scan, scan. But to sit with it, really think about it. What does it mean? What are the ramifications? How does it all work together? There were several other additional unplanned results that were found, one of which found that participants who reported to wear their mask, quote, exactly as instructed at all times, 
contracted SARS-CoV-2 infections 2% of the time versus the control group who didn't wear a mask contracting SARS-CoV-2 infections 2.1% of the time. It's almost exactly the same. The people who strictly did what they were supposed to do and the people who didn't wear a mask. Another unplanned result that the researchers noted was after analyzing a variety of different patient characteristics, they stated we did not find a subgroup where face masks were effective at levels of statistical significance. Another outcome, when analyzing who contracted one or more of 11 other respiratory viruses tested for, participants wearing masks contracted viruses 0.1% more often, all right? So they actually contracted just a teeny little bit more often, even though they're wearing a mask. Not statistically significant, but just like the other results, you should be able to know that people wearing masks were found to contract other respiratory viruses more often. And the conclusion of the study said, quote, in this community-based randomized controlled trial, a recommendation to wear a surgical mask when outside of the home, among others, did not reduce at levels of statistical significance the incidence of SARS-CoV-2 infections compared with those wearing no mask. This clinical trial was powered to test its hypothesis of a 50% reduction in SARS-CoV-2 from mask wearing, and it didn't get remotely close. We have to be able to talk about these things. We have to have open dialogue. Of course, there are multiple facets to examine with any of these studies, but when you start to see consistently that each and every randomized controlled trial has the same outcome of these not being effective, when are we going to shift to the things that are effective? When are we gonna stop allowing this very abnormal behavior that obviously has its own side effects and consequences that when you talk about them, it gets suppressed. Now, during this episode and in the show notes, I'm gonna drop some of these studies for you to check out. And of course, you can go to themodelhealthshow.com forward slash mask facts, and you can see some of the videos that we put together. And also many of these studies will be there as well for you to just dive into and you can you know, look through your lens and just look for uh, look for the gold, look for contradictory things, and just have a much broader perspective about these things, especially if you've really been inundated with the popular narrative. My mission with this, it's not, this is not about masks. This is about when are we going to shift our focus to what's actually effective, which has not been done. And when are we going to pay attention to the psychosomatic effects, the damage that's being done to our society because of all of the fear because of all the anxiety, because of all the absolute indoctrination with you are not enough, you are not capable. And as we shared earlier, if you step outside of your door, you're putting yourself in front of a firing squad. When are we gonna say enough is enough? When are we gonna take responsibility for our own health, for the health of our families and for the health of our communities? No studio help, studio gangster type help, real world help. Not the facade that I'm doing something to protect myself and protect others, but to really do it. That's what I'm standing for. And I appreciate you so much for standing with me. I appreciate you for, for taking this deep dive and this adventure into the most recent data that we have. I know some of it can be a little bit unsettling, but we've got to really, you know, a lot of this stuff can also be disheartening. And I promise you, I did go through a phase of like, I was really worried about us, but I believe in us. I believe that we are, people, humans are inherently, we're good. We just have to take control of our minds. We just have to work together. 
We just have to stop allowing the censorship of science because then it becomes, it's no longer science if we're not talking about things and questioning things. It becomes indoctrination, it becomes dictatorship, it becomes religion. And if you're not subscribed to the religion, then you already know the outcome. You don't get to go to the good place that everybody else gets to go. We cannot make science into religiosity. We've got to allow ourselves to question everything. Question everything. And for me, I know my cognitive bias. My cognitive bias, my red flag comes up whenever we start to do things that take us away from our humanity. Whenever we stop doing things that our DNA expects us to do, eating real food. If there is some advice that comes out saying, hey, this synthetic meat is the wave of the future. Woo, red flag comes up. Have humans been eating that very long? In hundreds of thousands of years? Red flag comes up. I get concerned. Not to say that synthetic meat isn't the best thing ever. It could be. Highly unlikely. Very, very unlikely. But I'm still open to it. But my, my cognitive bias is that, hey, does our DNA have any association? Does our DNA expect us to eat that or real food? When a recommendation comes to isolate yourself, when recommendations come to close the outlets that people have for fitness and health and community, my red flag comes up. Even, but still, I can accept that maybe this can be helpful. But once we know, because chances are it's not going to be helpful, but once we have data that it isn't effective or that it's not helping, that it's making things worse, we have to stop. We have to churn the ship because this is like Titanic going right for the for the for the glacier. Now, I don't know if you saw this, but that scene when, you know, Jack and whatever, and you know, everybody knows he could have got onto the 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 thing with her. You know, he didn't have to die. But if you saw it, that scene was shot in a pool. Oh my gosh. Some people are just like, the magic, we gotta keep the illusion of the magic. We gotta keep the movie magic. With this, with real life, we gotta break this illusion. We gotta stop acting like the stuff that we're seeing on television, the stuff that we're seeing in these news reports is the truth. This is about entertainment, it's about manipulation, it's about control, it's about pumping as much fear into your body to keep you addicted to the fear, keep you addicted to that news outlet. There's no good news, it's all bad. It's not even the news, it's the olds because it's the same old shit over and over and over again on replay, plus the sports, all right? The weather might change, but other than that, it's all bad news. It's more fear and destruction. It's more crime. It's more everything is wrong in the world, when in truth, there's so much good going on, when in truth, you have so much power to transform your own health, your own body, to take care of your family, to create success, to love, to connect. You are resilient, you're strong. Don't let them tell you otherwise. You are not a victim. We got some epic shows coming your way very soon. All right? I'm not stopping. Keeping my foot on the gas. Vin Diesel. We're going to Vin Diesel this bad boy. All right? I love you guys so much. Please share this out with your friends and family. Of course, you could tag me. I'm at Sean Model. Gas pedal down. We're just getting warmed up. I appreciate you so much for tuning in. Take care. Have an amazing day. And I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. 
and take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.